Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher in New York. want to start off this week by apologizing for a mistake on last week's episode. I mean, basically, nothing is materially wrong with that episode, but the blinds that I used were way off. Uh, talking about my day two of the World Series of Poker. Now, just so you guys know, a little peeling back the curtain. Generally, what I do is I notate all the important hands that I play during any major tournament with the idea that I might eventually discuss those hands here on the podcast and I set them aside, but my notations were obviously wrong on those hands that we discussed yesterday where I was saying that the blinds on day two of the main event were 8,000 and 16,000. Now, that is obviously wrong, and many of you picked up on that discrepancy, and I do appreciate your calling it to my attention. But believe me, the decisions that I had to make, even though the numbers were off, are materially the same as presented on the podcast last week. So if you haven't yet listened to that episode, just know the blinds are wrong, but the basic idea of what my M was and about how many players were left and all of that stuff is absolutely correct. I just had the wrong blinds and antes figured in. All right, enough about that. Let's talk about what's going on this week. We still do not have a schedule for this year's World Series of Poker. Now, I have been waiting and waiting for them to release the schedule so that we could hopefully talk about it on the podcast. I'm assuming that as soon as I upload this, as I record it on Friday morning, February 18th, I'm assuming that as soon as this episode actually hits the airwaves, as it were, that immediately after that, the WSOP will announce the schedule for this summer, and then I will have to wait until next week to comment on it rather than being able to do it when it's hot off the presses. As of this moment, on Friday, we are still eagerly awaiting the actual schedule. We know the dates, and we know that Vince Vaughn is somehow involved, and we know that it's in the property formerly known as Bally's, a.k.a. the best place to get your room burglarized and have management not care one iota about that, which will now be called the Horseshoe, and hopefully they'll have better security than the former property. Uh, yeah, we know all that, but we don't know like what day the Millionaire Maker starts and whether or not there's going to be a mystery bounty, which is what I care about the most, of course, as we all know. So that is TBD. Let's talk about something that is also TBD, but is moving. And for those of you who are outside of these United States, I apologize because you probably will not care about this story at all. But there seems to be some movement towards increasing online poker here in America. So let me kind of give you guys some quick background about what's going on. Now, some of this information I'm taking from an excellent reporter by the name of Connor Richards, who works for Poker News. So I want to make sure I give him proper credit because I did lift some of the details that I'm going to be reviewing here from his article, which you can find on pokernews.com. Right now, we have some form of legalized, regulated online poker 
in America in only six of our 50 states, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Nevada, West Virginia, Delaware, and Michigan. Uh, And a lot of this has to do with something called the Interstate Wire Act, which was written in 1961 and passed through Congress back then. Now, question one, how come laws never go away? Like something that applied back in 1961, before there was even such a thing as America Online, much less the internet as we know it today. It seems ridiculous that we're basing any decisions on something that was made well before almost all of us were born. So anyway, that's another story. But the Obama administration determined, the courts determined back then in 2011, so yeah, 11 years ago, determined that this 1961 law only applied to sports betting. Now, why it only applies to sports betting, I don't know. I think that the law was originally designed to prevent illegal gambling using the wires and I mean, all this outdated technology that should not apply at all to the internet as we know it today. Obviously, since the internet now and the technology that existed back in 1961, it's not even comparing apples to oranges. It's comparing apples to Sandra Bullock. Anyway, the courts back when Obama was president, they said that old law was not going to be repealed because no laws are ever repealed in this country, but it was going to only apply specifically to sports betting. Many insiders back then viewed that as the first opening of the gates for online poker to start permeating the atmosphere around the United States of America. And so that's what started to happen. If you can remember 10 or 11 years ago, that's when you started seeing more websites, legalized websites like WSOP.com and others popping up around the country, just in states where it was legalized. So they never made it a national law that said, all right, so online poker is legal in every state, so have at it and let it be wide open to everyone because that would have been too easy. Instead, they said each state has to make its own state law about online poker, whether you want to allow it or not, whether you want to allow sports betting or not. That's what was going on back then. And then just a few years ago when Donald Trump was president, that 2011 decision by the courts when Obama was president was reversed. And now they say, well, it includes all types of gambling, including state lotteries, including poker. They specifically mention state lotteries and poker. And many people felt that that was because one of Donald Trump's largest campaign donors was the late Sheldon Adelson, former owner of the Venetian, who we know was always an adamant anti-online poker force. He hated all of us and he's dead. So anyway, uh, New Hampshire sued the following year, this would have been 2019, and got that decision reversed back to the way it was in the Obama era, which said that stupid 1961 law only applies to sports betting. Once again, opening the doors for online poker and things like state lotteries and things like that to, again, exist. So, an important deadline is approaching next week. On February 23rd, 2022, that is the deadline for the Obama administration to, again, appeal the decision that's already been reversed and made and reversed 
again. So to see if they want to just let this go as is, or if they want to again try to reverse it in the way it was reversed under Trump. Almost no one thinks that the Biden administration has any intention to do that. And now we see how things really work in America. There's a company called International Game Technology, IGT. Those of you who have ever played slot machines or video poker will be familiar with this company because they make probably 50% of all the uh, video slot machines in the world. So it's a huge company, IGT, and they have filed in a Rhode Island court to get a declaratory judgment that would basically eliminate all the ambiguity around this issue. Now, the way things generally work is that laws are ambiguous on purpose so that if a particular company or group of companies or lobby wants to get a certain law written in a certain way, the other laws will be sufficiently ambiguous as to make that happen, which is basically what we saw under Donald Trump when he tried to change the meaning of the Wire Act, again, the 1961 law, to again mean that it wasn't just about sports betting, but that it applied to all types of gambling. Now, if you ask me, which by the way, no one did, but if you ask me, I would say that any law that was written about wires and telegraphs and ancient technology like that, before there was even such a thing as the internet, should automatically be repealed and dissolved. And why don't laws have expiration dates? Anyway, it is so ridiculous that we're even referring to something that was written 60 years ago, before there was even such a thing as color TV. 1961, your TV didn't even have a remote control. Anyway, uh, don't get me started. Well, I guess it's too late because I'm already started. So, Most experts are predicting that IGT will get what it wants, which again is what's called a declaratory judgment, which would eliminate the ambiguity by stating in no uncertain terms that this law does not apply to state lotteries, which IGT runs in many states, as well as poker. So that's where what comes in next is a law that was written just a few years ago called the Multi-State Internet Gaming Agreement, which Michigan, by the way, one of the states that already has online poker, is trying to join. It's basically a coalition whereby states can have their player pools combined so that we can have more players online at the same time. And then the states would divvy up the revenue however they divvy up the revenue when they take the taxes out of the winnings and the buy-ins and all that kind of stuff. So... At the end of the day, what's going on is things move very slowly, but they are moving in the right direction. Assuming what everyone thinks will happen, happens, then all of the trying to make the Wire Act apply to online poker is going to be definitively separated. And that whole argument is going to be thrown away, at least until the next (laughs) anti-online poker president takes office. But at least for now, it looks like we are about to have this hurdle cleared, which could result in maybe more states having online poker once they see that the revenues from sports betting are so big. Maybe they can also add other forms of gambling, which we, of course, hope would be inclusive of our favorite game. Then, given that this multi-state internet gaming agreement is already in place, it seems relatively easy for one state 
that's not in it to join it once that declaratory judgment is officially issued. So, uh, I mean, to be continued, but things are looking like they're starting to open up. And, you know, many of us thought that after Black Friday, it would just be a few months before we were able to play on Poker Stars again. And obviously, uh, we were extremely naive, possibly just as naive as those who thought that when the government said, just stay home for two weeks and the coronavirus will be gone. And we believe that as well. So obviously, things take a lot longer than you might think when it comes to the government, but at least... This is a step in the right direction, and I, for one, will be interested to see not only if we can get all of the states that currently have online poker to combine their player pools, which would make for much bigger prize pools and just a lot more fun to play online poker against people from around the country and not just people in neighboring states. Right now, I can play uh, online versus people who are in Delaware when I'm in New Jersey and there are also all the players in Nevada on the same site, I would love to see that expand. And I'm sure that you would too. All right. I want to do things a little bit differently today, maybe because I obviously don't know what the blinds are on day two of the main event. Why don't we start with day one, a of the main event and talk about a few hands that I did not play. These are hands that I observed on poker go or read about on poker news. So these are real life hands that actually happened in the 2021 main event last fall. And I will be only sharing one player's hand so that you can put yourself in that player's shoes and try to make your decisions in real time without knowing what the opponent in each hand has. Does that sound good? We used to do it this way here on the podcast when I reviewed main events in years past. So I want to get back to this because I find it interesting. And you have to ask yourself, what would you do in this player's shoes? So it's very early on day 1A of the 2021 main event. The blinds are definitely 300 and 500. And there's a 500 big blind ante. So the uh, pot begins with 1,300 chips in it before any action takes place. Uh, In this year, the starting stack for the main event was 60,000 chips, so we all have deep stacks. Even Simon Casserly, who starts off uh, from second position, opening to 1,200. He's got 30,000 in his stack. So despite losing half of his chips in the first couple of hours of play in the main event, he still has an M of 23. And 60 big blinds, a very playable stack. So Simon has the ace of clubs, king of diamonds. So ace-king offsuit, he raises from early position. And the action folds all the way to the button, who is Marco Zevola. And he's been doing well today. He's got 110,000 behind. So he's almost doubled his starting stack early on in the main event. And he calls with a hand that I will not yet reveal. So we are going to be playing... This hand as Simon Casserly. So again, you have the Ace of Clubs, King of Diamonds, and you open to 1,200. So like 2.4 big blinds. And you get called by a player on the button. The blinds fold, and we're going to see the flop. Heads up with 3,700 in the middle. The flop comes Ace of Diamonds, 10 of Clubs, 9 of Clubs. 
And remember, we have the ace of clubs. So we've got top pair and backdoor straight and nut flush draws. So what should we do in Simon's shoes? Uh, you have the option of checking or betting. We're out of position with ace-king on ace-10-9. And so I think that we should usually bet this flop. I mean, this flop is uh, better for my range than it is for my opponent's calling range. Uh, we can certainly get value from worse aces, but also there are plenty of draws that he may have called on the button with a hand like 8-7 that now has an open ender, uh, possibly even middle pair with a hand like Jack-10 or Queen-10 that also has you know straight possibilities as well. So there's obviously value to be gotten from a bet here, and I think that I would bet on the smaller side, maybe uh, just like 1300 into the 3700 pot. I want to get more action. I want to get called by hands like 9-8 or Jack-10 that might fold to a larger bet. So, And also, I would bluff that amount if I had a hand like King-Queen, which, by the way, has a gut shot Broadway draw. So, yeah, so most of my hands that I would be opening from second position are going to like this flop, and therefore we should be C-betting whether we made a pair or not. So, yeah, I think 1300 sounds right to me. Um, Casterly decides to bet 2000 into the 3700 pot. This is a little on the large size. Uh, I mean, I guess you get more protection from when your opponent has a gut shot with a hand like Queen Jack or King Jack or something like that. So there are a lot of hands that have, uh, you know, two Broadway cards. Any two Broadway cards that don't have a pair have a gut shot to the nuts right now. So maybe that's part of the reason why he wanted to bet more. Also, certainly if your opponent called on the button with a hand like Ace-Jack or Ace-Queen, he's not going to fold no matter how much you bet because you don't call in position with a hand like that trying to fold when you make top pair on the flop. So maybe we get a little bit more value. I don't hate betting bigger here, but I think that generally I would go for the smaller sizing. Uh, but yeah, Casterly bets 2,000, a little more than half the pot. And our opponent in this hand, who again, we have not yet revealed his holding, he calls. So uh, now with 7,700 in the pot, we see a turn, the seven of clubs. So the board is now ace of diamonds, 10 of clubs, nine of clubs, seven of clubs, and Hero has the ace of clubs king of diamonds. So now we not only have top pair, we also have the nut flush draw. How should we play this? Uh, certainly we can bet again. We have plenty of equity and a decent chance to build a good pot here against a hand like ace queen. Um, definitely our opponent would not be folding when he has a two pair or some other strong hand. Now he might even have a gut shot with a worse flush draw than we have. So I think that all things considered, betting does make sense. I also think that checking and going for a check raise is a pretty good play here. Again, we start with an M of 23. We've got a pretty big stack to begin with. And if you want to check here and see if your opponent fires, you know, maybe a smallish size, like maybe 3,000, check raise it up to 9,000. It's very hard for our opponent to continue regardless of his holding because we have the nut blocker, right? We've got that ace of clubs. So I don't mind that play either. So which one do you want to do? Well, Simon Casserly decides to check here and I don't know whether he was going for the check raise 
or not. He's got about 27,000 behind, so that means he's got a SPR of around three and a half right now. So, yeah, I think it's a good enough stack to check raise. Of course, we we'll have to go with it if our check raise gets re-raise and then we are basically putting our tournament life on the line with just top pair and the nut flush draw but because we have that ace of clubs i really don't expect a check raise to get raised very often simply because we know that our opponent cannot have the nut flush that's the key to making this check raise and i think that's the way i would typically play this hand in this situation you need to protect your checking range because so often you're going to give up You've got to have some strong hands in your check range on 4th Street. Otherwise, you're just too easy to beat because you can. I can just call your continuation bet and then see what you do on the turn. And every time you check the turn, I can take the pot away. So the defense to being that exploitable is to sometimes check with a strong hand on the turn and then see what develops from there by either check calling or check raising, but never check folding. So... Uh, Casserly does check, and I'm not really sure what the full strategy was because our opponent does something surprising here. He bets 6,300 into the 7,700 pot. Now, this is a much larger bet than we expected to be facing. You have to wonder what is the uh, polarized range here, right? Remember, when bets are larger, la the larger the bet is, generally speaking, the more polarized your opponent should be. So, in other words, he should not be making this bet with a hand like ace-jack, right? Now, ace-jack is a pretty strong hand. It's got top pair. There's also a gut shot with it. But still, if our opponent here, Zevola, has uh, ace-jack, I don't expect him to very often bet 6,300 into 7,700. He's representing a flush, right? Or maybe a set or a straight. But it feels like he's saying, I have a flush or I have nothing. So now a lot of that nothing will have equity. Like if he has a king-queen with the king of clubs, then he certainly has what he would perceive as substantial equity, given that he's got a gut shot and the second nut flush draw, not knowing that we have the nut flush draw and possibly not expecting us to ever check when we do have the nut flush draw, many players would always barrel on 4th Street when they picked up the nut flush draw with that 7 of clubs on the turn, which is why it's so important to sometimes mix up your game and have a few checks of strong hands and strong draws in that situation. But if Zevola has a flush, that means he did not semi-bluff raise on the flop with the flush draw. And so, of course, that's a perfectly viable play. You call in position, you flop a flush draw, your opponent bets a little bigger than you hoped, but you're happy to call because you have implied odds in case you get there. And now when your opponent checks to you, you're hoping that he has a hand just like the one that we have now in Simon's shoes, which is ace king, top pair, top kicker, possibly even with a club. So yeah, this bigger sizing would get action at least some of the time. But the point is, a polarized range doesn't have a lot of medium strength hands. So I don't expect there to be like an ace jack or a queen 10 or anything like that in villain's range. So what should Simon Casserly do? Now, if we checked planning to check raise, I don't think we were planning to check raise a bet of this sizing because now 
any reasonable check raise we make, we may as well just go all in. I mean, he's betting 6,300. So now there's over 14,000. There's exactly 14,000 in the middle at the time when this bet is made. And we only have 27,000 in our stack. So any reasonable check raise, we may as well just go all in. Do we want to go all in and just hope we get a fold? Knowing that we can get bailed out if we happen to catch a club on the river. I don't think that's a winning strategy. Uh, We will sometimes get bailed out by the river, but because we don't expect to ever get called by a hand like ace-jack or ace-queen, because again, those hands aren't betting 6,300 very often, that means that when we do get called, we are usually going to be up against a hand that is stronger than the ace-king. So, for that reason, I think it's best to just call this bet in Simon's shoes. But yeah, certainly hate putting in 6,300 because now that means that we've put in a third of our stack already before the river and we have a relatively strong hand. Uh, The river comes the 10 of diamonds. So the pot is now 20,300 and we have just about 21,000 remaining in our stack. So just over a pot size bet. And the final board is ace, 10, 9, 7, 10 with three clubs. And the hero has the ace of clubs and king of diamonds. So what should we do in Casserly's shoes when this 10 of diamonds hits the river? Uh, You know, you could try something cute like um, a small like blocking bet, defensive bet type of play. Like if you're planning to call if your opponent bets 8,000 or something like that for value on the river, maybe you can bet that amount yourself or a little bit less than that amount to try to control the price, knowing that your opponent really shouldn't be ever raising a river donk lead. Uh, You might save a little bit of money like if he would have gone all in if you had checked, but he's not going to raise you all in if you bet. So, I mean, that's a pretty much a player-specific strategy, and I'm not sure that I would do it here with the ace-king. But holding the ace of clubs in my hand might embolden me to try that and maybe see if I can represent that not flush on the river. I think many opponents wouldn't even raise with a small to medium flush because the check call the turn and then donk lead the river when the board pairs is just too strong. Why do I want to lose those extra chips when I'm thinking I can't get called by worse? So in other words, if I employ this strategy in Simon's shoes, I'm going to need to fold when I put it raises, which would really suck because that means I put in like two thirds of my stack with top pair and then end up having to throw it away, which would just be brutal. Uh, But yeah, because no one really can raise If I do that donk lead on the end, I would pretty much be comfortable throwing it away. Now that the board paired, I think even a pretty strong flush probably just calls if I bet 8K here on the end. The only time that really hurts, though, is if the river could have gone check, check, and your opponent turns over a winner. You see what I mean? That means that opponent is getting an extra 8,000 when he would not have been comfortable betting for value. But it's hard to come up with any hand that that fits that description, right? I mean, if I check and my opponent has a flush, he's going to bet his flush like 100% of the time. He's not going to care that the board is paired because we didn't bet on the end. So in the final analysis, betting 8,000 seems to make a lot of sense. 
And if you can get away with going even smaller, thereby losing even less money when you're beat, then go for 6000 if you think that it won't get raised. So the hands that are going to raise, they should all have us beat. So putting out the defensive bet seems to be the play here. Simon decides to check this river card. And at that point, after a few seconds of thought, Zevola moves all in. So do we want to call a pot-sized bet on the river for our tournament life with the ace-king? I don't know. We've already put in a third of our stack. We've got the ace of clubs blocking the nut flush. The question becomes, how many full houses or quads does our opponent have? I don't know. It doesn't feel like there should be that many the way this hand has been played. But of course, there's always the chance that our opponent bets so big on the turn because that seven gave him a set, right? Maybe he has pocket sevens, called the 2,000 on the flop, just hoping that we would check the turn and he could take the pot away, didn't want to be too exploitable, had a pair below third pair. It seems like a lot. Um, what kind of hands would Zevola have just called with pre-flop that now have a very strong hand on the end? You've got to think about it. What could he possibly have made a very strong hand with? Obviously, flushes are possible, but most of his best flushes are blocked by our ace of clubs, of course. So if he's betting all in, he's really representing a very strong flush, which we know he doesn't have the strongest flush, but of course he could have a hand like King Jack of Clubs, right? He could certainly have that hand, although many players would have raised our flop bet with a hand that strong with the second nut flush draw plus a gut shot, a lot going on. Uh, it would make sense that some of the time, at least, you might want to go ahead and raise with a hand like that, but definitely it's, it's perfectly fine to call and then bet big for value on the turn and not be deterred by the 10 pairing the board on the river because Simon has checked both the turn and the river, which most players would not do with a hand that can beat the king high flush. So that makes sense as well. But trying to piece it all together, Simon Casterly has a very, very hard decision with just top pair and top kicker on this pretty scary board so what about you do you want to call for your tournament life or do you want to fold and keep your twenty-one thousand stack intact and live to fight another day well casserly decides to fold and i really can't say that i blame him but as it turns out he was the victim of a bluff by marco zevola who showed up with the queen of clubs and jack of hearts so he flopped the open-ended straight draw with the backdoor club draw queen high flush draw and semi-bluffed heavy with a lot of what he perceived to be a lot of equity on the turn and then missed everything on the river but decided to put his man to the test and i really like this play by Zevola. Poor Simon Casserly was basically outplayed in this hand. And you have to wonder what would have happened. I mean, I mean, of course, now we know what the cards were. But I really feel like in this situation, that defensive bet on the river is the way to go. I don't think that Marco Zevola could have uh, raised 
an 8,000 bet on the river, he would have just ended up folding. And the defensive bet would have defended us from getting outplayed holding top pair. Well, that'll do it for this episode. I know I said earlier that we were going to uh, do a couple of hands from this main event, but I think that I went on a little too long about <laughs> you know, legalized poker in uh, America. So uh, apologies that we didn't get to the second hand, but that gives us something to discuss next time. I have a lot of main event hands I want to talk about in an effort to help all of us get ready for this summer, where at some point the main event will be played and hopefully without masks. So cross your fingers and knock on wood and whatever else for that. But it seems like all of that's going the right direction. And I, for one, am waiting on pins and needles to find out what the schedule for this year's World Series of Poker is going to end up looking like. Uh, If you're still looking for an amazing and affordable website where you can learn all about poker tournament strategies from some of the best minds in the business, I recommend TournamentPokerEdge.com, where if you use our promo code PODCAST at checkout, you can save $10 off of your first month's membership at TournamentPokerEdge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, please. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Baby, when it's love, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun.